Um, so uh, that we will do it at the end of our first service and the second service that we record. And um, all of a sudden, Mike will hit stop, and then we'll make the announcement. Um, so if you are just that person where you are now nosy and you want to know what we are going to say, then you have to be here in person um, for that. Thank you, Lori. And um, so we cannot, cannot wait to make this. It's, a, it's an awesome thing. We are so excited about what we believe God is doing, and we want you to be here. And then we're going to take some steps, steps of action um, and walking through kind of our response to it. So um, can't wait. Hope you will join us next week. And if, if not, you can call somebody, and they'll hopefully tell you something false um, just for you not being here and make you have to wait even longer. So anyway, with all of that said, if you are new uh, with us today or if you have been coming but still have no clue what's going on, we started this year by walking through the book of Romans. So this amazing, deep, incredible book, and we, are, we have gotten 23 weeks into our study. Then right around July 4th, we paused and we took an eight-week trip through the book of Galatians, which is all about freedom and the freedom that we have in Christ. And we finished that up last week, so now we are back in our study, week 24 of the book of Romans, all of its 433 verses, and we are 76% of the way through this book now, and I believe we have about 14 weeks left in this amazing book or, or letter so what we know is through 23 weeks in this letter or book, we have seen highs and we have seen lows. Paul has brought us to the depths of our sin. That's a low and the wrath that our sin deserves. And then Paul has also brought us to the height of our salvation and the grace of God that has been poured out upon us. And I'm not saying that every week in our series in Romans has made sense to us. Because as we began this series, we said it didn't even make sense to, to Peter. Peter talked about the things that, that Paul wrote and how difficult they can be. But what we do know is the truths in this book, even though we can't understand them all, they are absolutely glorious. And there is so much information to digest in this book. And just think about information. Today we live in the midst of an information explosion. So it just keeps exploding. Never has the average person been so privy to so much knowledge with the internet and what we have just at our fingertips. We have storehouses of information. And think about this. In the year 1292, the library in Paris was home for 1,338 handwritten books. The library's collection of literature represented at the time 90% of the accumulation of man's wisdom for the previous several thousand years. Today, that same number of books, 1,338, roughly represents the number of books that are printed every single day. So let that sink in for just a second. And then rewind the clock 100 years. Today's edition of any popular newspaper or, or magazine contains more information than a person living in 1921 would have probably gotten in their whole lifetime. There's a volcano of knowledge and information exploding all around us. Some true, much not true, and we have to learn the difference. But think about this. Social commentator Chris Kimball points out that in the early half of the 1900s, to be an American, you had to have guts. Courage and the drive were what society valued most. In the last half of the 20th century, you had to have heart because we were told that all you need is love. 
So we had to have heart and, and love and self-expression and sensitivity were coveted character traits in our country. But now in the 21st century, Kimball says that the organ of emphasis is the brain. You have to be smart. Intelligence, he says, has become the most desired human trait. However, there's a danger in the ascendance of intelligence, meaning we become so smart, at least in our own self-estimation, that we begin to think that we're catching up with God. Now, we would never say that, but because we don't seek him, desire him, and cry out to him shows that we live as if we think we have it all together. So just, just we want to frame this in, in, in a way that, that points to our destination today. So in, in Romans 9 through 11, kind of where we've already been, Paul climbs as high as as he can in this summit of truth. So information after information after information, Paul is just loading, unloading on us concerning God, salvation, who he is, um, his desires and plans. Yet what Paul does in discovering all of these truths is he realizes in this um, peak or in this summit that he's going up on, he still can't see the peak. He still can't see the top of all that God is, but unable to climb any higher, Paul falls down and worships God in the midst of God's incomprehensibility. So Paul rejoices in the fact that God knows what he's doing even when we don't know what he's doing. Paul rejoices in the fact that God never forgets who he is even when we forget who God is. Or even when there's a certain part of God that is unknowable for us, God is still worthy of our worship. I read a story this week about George Washington Carver, the man who discovered, some say, 300 different things to do with a lowly peanut. So George Washington Carver was a devout Christian who had a deep knowledge of God. And when he was asked where he came up with so many uses for the peanut, he told this story. He said that when he was a young man, he went for a walk in the fields. And while he was there, he and the Lord had a conversation. When he asked the Lord to show him why he had created the universe, the Lord said, Son, that uh, information is too much for you. Ask for something you can understand. So Carver said, I'll, I'll try it again. Lord, show me why you created the world. Still too big for you. Try again. George Washington Carver dropped his eyes to the ground and happened to see some peanuts on the vine. Lord, he said, could you tell me why you created the peanut? That's a good question. Now we found something you can understand. The Lord showed Dr. Carver the secrets of the peanut, and he used what God showed him to change the world. But just think about that. So many times God says, that's too big for you. It's too big for you. Or Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that we come to God and say, God, I want to know, and God says, it's none of your business. Trust me. It's none of your business. Trust me. Me. Listen, trying to fully understand God is like trying to empty the ocean with a tiny bucket. You dip your bucket in a thousand times and you've made no dent in the vast expanse of the ocean. Your bucket is too small. Your arms are too weak. The ocean is too wide and deep. And so it is with God. Yet, hear this, when we fill our buckets, meaning our minds and our hearts, with him, we are all the more blessed because of it. When we fill our buckets, our minds and our hearts with him, we are all the more blessed because of it. 
Yet when it comes to knowing God, we have to confess that God is incomprehensible. And what I mean by that is that when we say God is incomprehensible, we're saying that God is glorious. He's a glorious triune God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's in a category all by himself. And hear this, we will never know God fully or exhaustively. Even one day in heaven, we, some people have the idea you're going to go to heaven, you're going to learn all there is to know about God, life's going to be boring, and you're going to wonder what you're going to do. We will never for an eternity never come to the bottom of God. That's how great he is. You'll never get to the bottom of him for all of eternity. So you cannot know God fully, but praise God, you can know God truly. You can know God. We can know God truly, which begs the question this morning, how well do you know him? How well do we know him? A generation ago, a man named J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Now, it's kind of self-explanatory when you think about it, but so many of us struggle in our world and we struggle in life because the God that we serve is really a God that's too small. He's not the God of this book. He's a God that we have created or that somebody else has created for us. We've neatly defined him or we placed him in this box where he has to stay and that's not the God of this book but in in that book J.B. Phillips said this if your God is too small perhaps you need to take another look at the God of the Bible over the centuries theologians have used certain words to describe his essence sovereign almighty omnipotent omniscient omnipresent infinite eternal immortal to mention only a few but no list of adjectives could ever adequately picture the immenseness of God. He is far bigger than we imagine. His presence fills the universe. He is more powerful than we know, wiser than all the wisdom of the wisest men and women. His love is beyond human understanding. His grace has no limits. His holiness is infinite, and his ways are past finding out. He is the one true God. Then he says this, he has no beginning and no end. He created all things and all things exist by his divine power. He has no peers. No one gives him advice. No one can fully understand him. Our best efforts fall so far short of his divine reality that we flatter ourselves to think that we truly understand him at all. The God that we serve, brothers and sisters, the God that we are here today worshiping, you can't define him on a bumper sticker. You, you, can't, you, you can't give him what he, he desires. You can't give him what he's worth in an hour a week. The, the reality, this God is immense, and he is beyond our ability to fully understand, yet we can know him truly. I, I pray that the God that you serve today is not a God who is too small. So the way for us to make God big enough is to turn to the word and see God's, or excuse me, Paul's description of the one and only God, a God who is bigger than we could ever care or ever begin to imagine. So we're going to look at Romans 11, verses 33 through 36 together. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand up as we honor God's word together today. And what a text this is. So after much meat, so Paul's digging, digging, digging. Now Paul stops, and this is a doxology, a, a picture of praise. And Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you are glorified today. Lord, that we would see that you alone deserve the glory that you alone deserve the praise, that you alone, God, are God. It is you who have made us and not we ourselves. We are your people, as the psalmist says, and the sheep of your pasture. But Lord, you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our devotion. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our all. Lord, just show us today how worthy you are. Show us today, God, just how amazing and wonderful, incomprehensible you are that we can't know you fully, but God, we can know you truly. For you are a God who reveals yourself to us. Just speak during this time, God, by your word, through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So throughout the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans, Paul is giving us an a comprehensive account of the gospel. He begins with a picture of our sin, how sinful we are. And then he goes to the picture of God's grace, how much grace God has poured out upon us, grace upon grace upon grace. He pictures um, in, in Romans 8, the mighty working of the Spirit of God, and then the God who is his love transcends every bit of problems we could ever have in this world. Then Romans 9 through 11 Paul kind of walks through and weaves through God's plan for the Gentile and the, the Jew and ultimately God's plan for the, the world. And Paul is ascending and he's giving us information after information, so much information. But Paul comes to the end of the information and all he can do is bow down and worship God. All he can do is just say, I don't even get it. But God, you're God and you are worthy. You are worthy, God. So as Paul thinks back over all that he's written, he's, he's moved by the God who has called him, saved him, set him apart, the God who has used him. So in the remaining time that we have together, I wanted to lay before us three things that we must do in response to the gracious revelation of this God. Three things that we must do in response to who this God is. Number one, rejoice in the wonder of of God's greatness. Rejoice in the wonder of God's greatness. Look back at verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth. We could just stop there. How deep is God? He is graciously deep. He's abundantly deep. He is deeply deep. That's how deep our God is. Paul, think about this. God is so deep that Paul could only stand at the edge and peer into the deep. I think about when you go to the beach and you wade out. As long as your feet hit the sand, you feel like you are in control. But go out further and further and further or let um, the current get you and, and take you out further than you can fill the sand. And now you are out very, very far. You begin to say, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. I'm, I'm, I'm in deep. I'm in deeper than I probably should be. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how Paul felt. Oh, the depth of, I, I have been cast into the deep end of who God is. But then Paul says this, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
God's riches in his mercy and grace towards us, his wisdom and knowledge that many scholars put together, then how unsearchable are your judgments, how unscrutable his ways. Don't miss that the Bible, my Bible puts an exclamation point on those last two statements. Don't miss that. Oh, the beauty, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, unscrutable his ways. God knows instantly, God knows effortlessly all matters, all spirits, every being, every mind, all creatures, every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts. He knows all mysteries, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret. He knows. He knows all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. He knows all motion, all time, all space. He knows life and death and good and evil and heaven and hell. He knows it all. How deep is the knowledge and wisdom of our God? Here's the problem. The problem is we don't contemplate the wisdom of and knowledge of God nearly enough. When Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he meant it. We don't just love God with your heart. Most of us just stop with an emotional kind of thing. Love the Lord with your mind. Think about who he is. Because here's the deal. If we don't think about who God is, we begin to think that God's just kind of on our plane. So God would do everything that we would do. And so God, the God that many of us serve has never disagreed with us in the light. And uh, many times, you know, God has never taken us to the woodshed, so to speak, because God agrees with me. He agrees with me on every little thing. If you have a God who agrees with you on everything you do, I can assure you he's not the God of the Bible. I can assure you of that because the God of this word is a God who, and we're about to get to it, who a God who, whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In fact, Isaiah 55, God actually says that. My ways are so much higher. My thoughts are so much greater. We don't contemplate it enough. So, so for us, from the time we're born, we're learning. We learn so much. We learn how to speak. We learn how to walk. We learn what we should appropriately say and where we should hopefully appropriately walk. We learn subjects in school. We learn about life, how to relate to other people, how to be responsible, how to be dependable, how to care for our family and friends. There is so much that we learn, and we never learn it all, but the same thing can't be said of God. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on him? God has never learned anything because he doesn't have to. He has all knowledge at his dispense in every single moment. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, has written this. God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the most high God, maker of heaven and earth. Because God knows all things perfectly. He knows nothing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything. Rejoice in the greatness of our God. 
For you see, we oftentimes, if we're not careful, we think we know greatness, and even we think that we are great. I, th- I think of this. Muhammad Ali used to proclaim that all the time. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Once Muhammad Ali was on a commercial flight, and just before the takeoff, the attendant came to him and said, uh, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she, being quick, um, returned it and said, and Superman don't need no airplane. Now buckle up, to which he buckled up. Now we also know in the latter years of Ali's life, he suffered the effects of Parkinson's and experienced the same fate that all humanity in the grave. Here's the point, brothers and sisters, human greatness has always and will always fall short of the greatness of God. Human greatness will, has always, will always fall short of the greatness of God. Rejoice in the wonder of God's greatness. But then secondly, reflect upon the exclusivity of God's greatness. Reflect upon the exclusivity of God's greatness. So now verses 34 and 35 contain three rhetorical questions that Paul asks, each one expecting the negative answer of no one. So look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Or who has been his counselor? No one. Which of us, think about uh, just us in this room, us watching online, which of us is in a place to lecture God on the right thing to do? Just let that sink in for a second. Which one of us thinks that we are able to give counsel to the wonderful counselor? Which one of us thinks that before we even attempt to lecture God on the right thing to do, we need to ask, where did we learn our concept of justice and compassion? Well, we learned it from, uh, oh, oh, from him. We learned it from him. So how in the world can we counsel him if everything that we have learned is from him? Furthermore, hasn't the way that God has worked in the world to bring salvation to us shown us that God is absolutely worthy of our trust. The fact that salvation has worked in this world, has made its way to us, we can trust this God, even when we can't get our small minds around what he is doing. Don't we also have testimonies across this room of the fact that things that we thought were good and dead, God brought them back to life, and things that we thought were destined for bad, God made them for good. Therefore, can't we trust him? Can't we, can't we know that everything that you're going, that's going on in your life right now, God will do what he's always done. He will turn it for your good and for his glory if you love him. It's what the word of God says. And then verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. That's like, that's like your child coming up and asking for money so they can go out and buy you a gift and then expecting you to give them some great congratulations for giving a gift that you paid for. But that's exactly what it is with God. Everything we give to him, he's given to us. So we sometimes give, we do something for God, and we're like, we're expecting a pat on the back. And God's like, I gave you the breath to do it. Like, I, I don't understand what you want from me. Listen, most complaints that we have either to God or about God are built on the assumption that God owes us good things because of something that we've done, and how dare God ever allow bad things to enter our lives. But Paul says, you don't understand the gospel. Because, let me ask you a question this morning. Let's see if we get it right. What does God owe you? So in one standpoint, God owes us, get this, nothing except for hell. 
So if we, if we were to ask, what is God, what, is, what do I deserve? Well, according to the word of God, we deserve hell. So anything that we get other than hell is an absolute blessing and gift from God. The fact that we woke up this morning and took a breath is simply grace upon grace. The fact that we experience anything other than hell is grace. Listen, the question of this book is not, how can, how can God allow bad things to happen to me, a good person? That's not the question of this book because this book says there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who's good. That's what this book says. So the question of the Bible is not how can God allow bad things to happen to me, a good person. The question is how can God pour out good things of grace upon me, such a terrible person. That's the question of the word of God. And yet Paul says grace upon grace upon grace. And now listen, I'm not saying that there's never a place to question why God allows certain things into your life. I'm not saying that. Because we know that there's about a third of the Psalms where the psalmist says, why God? How long? What are you doing? But understand this. The psalmist never came to God in an accusatory way saying, God, you need to answer me right now. How dare you? No, it's a picture of God. I am humbly coming before you and I just need to know why. I just want to know how. And if you don't answer me, God, I'm going to trust you. But Lord, just, just how long? Or God, what are you doing? What are you up to? But here's what we need to understand. Behind every question we ask God, we should, there should be a recognition that we at the core are part of the human race who has rejected God, who have rejected him, and we deserve condemnation. God ultimately, think, think about this. God needs no advisors. He has no creditors. He acts in his own wisdom. He's obliged to no one. Praise him for his grace. Reflect upon the exclusivity of his greatness. There's no one like him. No one can do what he has done. No one, nothing like our God. So greatness upon greatness, which leads us to the last truth. Reaffirm the scope of God's glory. So not only are we dealing with greatness, we're dealing with glory. R.C. Sproul once wrote, If there were one maverick molecule in the universe running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign control, God would not be sovereign, and if God were not sovereign, he would not be God. If God were not in control, he wouldn't be God. So what is it that makes God God? Verse 36 gives us the answer, and it is beautiful. It is glorious. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Here is the unfolding of history in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Here is the way of salvation in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Here is the story of your life and my life all in one sentence. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Here is the absolute meaning of life. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And why are all things the way that they are? Paul says this, for his glory, for the glory of God. See, the problem is many of us, and we don't even know it, we're in a wrestling match with God for glory. And we, if we read scripture, scripture says, God comes on the scene and God says, I will share my glory with no one. And yet we won't. We want glory that we think we deserve. 
And so here we are battling God for glory, and God has it all, deserves it all, will get it all, and we're saying, but I want what's mine. How dare I not get the recognition that I deserve? We find ourselves oftentimes as little babies crying um, in, in the presence of a God who is deserving of all glory. Listen, when we truly consider who he is, what he has done, what he continues to do in this wayward world that mocks him and ridicules him every way imaginable, we will fall to our knees just like Paul did, and we will say to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. And this is how Paul ends. To him be the glory forever. I want you to think about that because this is where Paul ends and this is where we are going to end. To God be the glory forever. In life and in death, to God be the glory forever. In joy and in sorrow, to God be the glory forever. In good days and in dark nights, to God be the glory forever. In sickness and in health, to God be the glory forever. In your career and in your home, to God be the glory forever. In your marriage and in the lives of your children and grandchildren, to God be the glory forever. In your prosperity or even in your poverty, to God be the glory forever. In days of peace or in times of war, to God be the glory forever. When the gentle breeze comes or when the gathering storm looms to God be the glory forever in the classroom or in the boardroom God be the glory forever in moments of victory or right after your darkest deepest defeat to God be the glory forever when prayers are answered or when prayers aren't answered the way you want them to be to God be the glory forever in yesterday's tears, in today's rejoicing, in tomorrow's adventures, to God be the glory forever. And on heaven, excuse me, on earth and in heaven, to God be glory forever. Amen. Whatever comes, amen, to him be the glory. Whatever comes in our lives, whether tragedy or triumph, in the midst of the years with all the changing seasons, when we know everything we think we need to know or when we know nothing at all, when all of our hope is gone, all we have left is him. And to him alone be the glory. Amen. To him alone. He is deserving of it all. And this is going to be a, a weird kind of transition. God is deserving of our glory, or his glory. He's deserving of his glory, us to give him the glory, give him the praise that he is worthy of. And I want to transition now to a time of communion. And I want you to take out your communion cups, and if you are here and you did not get one, I want to ask you to raise your hand now if you want to celebrate so we can make sure we get you one. So, Brother Steve, you got everybody very good. This past week in our Bible reading plan, we read, um, one of the days we read Psalm 32, and in Psalm 32, Brother Steve, Brother Steve, in Psalm 32, verse 1, David writes this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
And sometimes we read that and we don't think about what necessarily that means. Because sometimes we think, well, blessed is he whose sins are, are forgive, forgiven, sins are covered. And, and David used some words there that we need to think about. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. What does it mean to transgress? Transgress is for God to draw a line and for God to say, don't cross this line. And for us to see the line and for us to walk right across it anyway, basically saying, God, I could care less what you say. I'm going to do it anyway. And David says, we have done that. God has drawn the line. We've transgressed the line, and yet we can still be forgiven. Think about that. Does that hit you at all? If it doesn't hit you at all, then you don't understand your sinfulness and you don't understand God's holiness. Or it says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. The word sin means the missing of a mark. So think about a, a bullseye. Think about this target. With a bullseye being perfection, what God wants. And think about your and my attempts. And guess what? We're not landing on the board. We're landing all kind of places, but not even close to perfection of what God desires. And yet God says, our sin is covered. But there's a greater deal here. In the Old Testament, sins were covered because they would bring sacrifices, and God would cover their sin, and then they would have to bring other sacrifices for those sins to be covered. But the picture is different when we get the New Testament. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, when we put our faith and trust in him, not only are our sins covered, our sins are cleansed. We are cleansed of our sin. Our sins are cleansed. There's therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Jesus, all of that happens because of Christ. To him be the glory forever. And when we come to this time of celebrating communion, this is a time where we were talking earlier this morning. Some religions will say that what we're doing here is we are earning grace. And we are saying, God, give me grace, and I'm doing this, and you're going to save me. That's not what we're doing. Brothers and sisters, we're not earning grace. We're celebrating grace that's already been given to us. We're not earning forgiveness. We're celebrating forgiveness that has already reached us. We're not earning anything. We're celebrating that Jesus Christ has earned it all for us. So therefore, this is not a dead tradition that we get to be, do or have to do in the church this is a living celebration that we are celebrating what christ has done for us and may we never ever ever grow tired of it so what i want to do is real quick i want to ask us to if everybody can bow their head and close their eyes in the book of corinthians it talks about making sure that we come at, at this place in a right way that we make sure our hearts are cleansed that we make sure that we're coming to this ordinance in a, in a way that we're supposed to. So I would ask you in this moment, take time to confess your sin before God. Ask God to reveal to you anything that's not right in your heart, in your life in this moment. And if God brings it to your attention, bring it to him and ask him to do with it what he's promised, to forgive and cleanse of all unrighteousness. Let's just do that in this moment. Father, in the quietness of this moment, we do confess, Lord, our sin before you.
that in and of ourselves, God, we're not worthy. In and of ourselves, we could never do enough. Yet praise be to you. You're worthy. And Jesus, you've done enough. You've done everything necessary for our salvation. Praise you. Lord, forgive us and cleanse us, Lord, and help us to see the beauty of your salvation, the beauty, Jesus, of your broken body and your shed blood for us. Over and over again, we see that picture in Scripture for us, for us. Everything, Jesus, you did for us. The cross was for us. As it was for the holiness of God. Today, Lord, just help us to see you rightly. Help us to see ourselves rightly. And help us to rejoice in you greatly. In your name, amen. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and the top of this cup, there is a little pill back. Then you can pill back the bread. What we are told in Scripture is the night before Jesus was betrayed, at the conclusion of the feast that he was having with his disciples, he took bread, having blessed it, he gave it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. John 6, 58, Jesus says, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He that eats this bread will live forever let's eat now if we can peel back the next portion which is the the juice and on the same night our Lord took the cup and blessed it and said this is my blood which was shed for you Hebrews 9 22 says and according to the law I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. Let's drink. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And brothers and sisters, I have good news. He's coming. He is coming. And we have every reason to rejoice in him. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray one more time, and we're going to enter just to a time of consecration, a time just to reflect upon who we have in Christ. Kind of our closing moment together today as a faith family. And let us pray. Father, you are amazingly good. Jesus, we thank you for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Lord, just finish this time in a way that only you can. And Lord, help us to see that we do not serve a sometimes present God. We do not serve a God who's just up in heaven, just looking down upon us so distant. Lord, we serve a God that your word tells us, Lord, you're not just for us, you're with us. And not just with us, but you're in us. And we can say that no matter what we go through, no matter how 
difficult the road might be that's before us, God, we will never, ever have to walk it by ourselves. You are with us. Jesus, you are in the fire, right with us, so that we can say, even in the midst of the the furnace, glory be to God forever and ever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.